Okay, we back up in here. Gonna have a good show today. Good show. I got a special guest. So let me read her accolades before we get started. Her name is <laughs> Her name is Virginia B.S. She is a, a marriage and family therapist, and she graduated. Let me give her. Let me give you her credentials because she's got a lot of them. She graduated from uh, Cal State Fullerton with an M.S. in clinical psychology in 2009. A.M.S. means what? Master of Science, right? Masters of Science. Okay. Um, some of the well, what I got. Some of her top specialties are. Mood disorders, this stuff still correct? Relationship issues, child, her expertise are, there's a lot of them, so I'll read some of them. ADHD, anger management, anxiety, autism, behavioral issues, bipolar disorder, disorder, bisexual, career counseling, chronic illness, coping skills, depression. There's a, it's probably a long list of things. So I just wanted to give her a proper introduction. Thank you for uh, coming to the podcast. So give us a little background about yourself. Tell us what got you started in, um, in this field? Thank you for inviting me. Um, I don't know how far to get back. Um, what, started me, what started me in general in psychology was going to community college mm -hmm. and then taking my first psych class. And when I took my first psych class, um, I fell in love with it. And I didn't know what I wanted to do with it other than I wanted to do something in psychology. And as I've gone through the different courses, whether it was just something like abnormal psychology, which I found fascinating, even research methods, I didn't particularly like it, but I appreciated it. Same thing with stats. I just ended up liking everything about psychology. Um, and from there, um, I think once people Typically, when someone enjoys a field, then they kind of then can hone in on the area that they're interested in. So some people then will go into that, the academia academia, or the research-based, and then some may say, actually, I don't really like therapy or research at all. I want to do therapy, and they'll go that route. But like I said, I ended up really liking both. And so um, I ended up getting my master's in clinical psychology at Fullerton because that program gave me these both these both these two components of research and therapy and so always along this along the way of my undergrad and graduate school i had the, both of these two areas of psychology um, finding a job where you can combine both is difficult mm. um, and so um, when I graduated, I ended up doing research at a children's hospital. Um, and then once I, I then decided I wanted to finish up and get my license for the marriage and family therapy, and then I went into therapy. But along the, along the line, after I graduated, I've always been teaching. Mm -hmm. So I've been teaching psychology mm -hmm. and various courses. We're, we're going to get to your teaching yeah. because I remember you telling me you, those are that you had two of your passions. Yeah. But to focus on the psychology, what do you think some of like the misconceptions of psychology? Like if you were to tell, like you ask somebody if usually when they ask us as we're kids, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? And most mm -hmm. people, uh, you know, oh, a nurse, or I want to be a lawyer. But if you were encouraging somebody that would uh, run away from being psychologist, what are you? What are some of the misconceptions about it? And what are some of the benefits that you think? you've gained from it? Um, I think a lot of the misconceptions, well, it, it depends on which area I'm in. When I'm teaching it, I think a misconception is um, maybe it's a soft science, so it's not 
rigorous enough. Um, I don't think there's as much appreciation of how difficult it is to develop constructs and then study human behavior or their mental processes. And in my in the therapy perspective, I think the misconception, well, there's lots of misconceptions and stigma behind mental health and um, what a therapist can and cannot do. Um, but there's, I mean, there's lots of, I don't know, I, can, I think I can go on and on and on about all these different misconceptions of psychology. Um, if, I t- if I meet someone and I tell them I'm in psychology, mm-hmm. then they'll automatically think I'm a therapist. Mm-hmm. Well, I am, but they'll know I'm a yeah, therapist. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then they'll think I'm automatically psychoanalyzing them, which I'm not, because okay. that's work, and I don't okay. want to do work. So in your, in, in your therapy, people come see you. I think I've seen something before you had a practice. You were practicing or counseling. Mm-hmm. And when you see somebody, so what's the, a, like, given an assessment, what's the first thing that you're, that you're trained to do? Like, evaluate, the pro- yeah, the process, the process of, of this, yes. So the first, with any agency, whether you're in private practice or in an agency, um, you, well, let me back up. I think for an agency, you start off with documents with maybe a quick survey that they may have for you of like what's going on and the consent documents, financial documents, things like that, insurance, um, what's going to cover, who's going to pay or if it's out of pocket. Um, If I'm in private practice, I tend to want to offer the client um, sort of like a free session, but more so like a consultation for the person to meet with me, get to know me, see if I'm a good match, because not every therapist is a good match for everyone. Um, And then if they decide um, to continue with me, then it would be the documents. um, And then um, we can actually begin therapy. And I want to clarify, I'm not saying that I give necessarily like free therapy advice, but Mm -hmm. it's more so this is what it would be like. This is my approach type of thing. Um, And then it's the actual process of a full-on assessment, depending on the agency that you're in or who is funding it, like the Department of Mental Health, they'll have a more extensive um, assessment that you have to complete, which takes hours, and you have about like 60 days to complete. Um, Other agencies, smaller agencies or private practice may have a much smaller assessment. But I think throughout as a therapist, you're constantly assessing things mm-hmm. um, because not everyone, I mean, I'm still a stranger and yeah. not everyone may feel comfortable to tell me everything that happened to them. Yeah. And so even though I may ask, have you ever experienced a trauma? I might find out later, six months later or mm-hmm. a year later, what that there was actually a trauma that maybe they denied it eventually, uh, initially. Okay. So we, we go through the assessment process and here, here's been one of my biggest issues. Mm-hmm. Um, well, for people that advocate for mental health, if you don't have the right type of insurance, yeah. say, for instance, Kaiser is big with this right now. A lot of people, depending on if what type of Kaiser you have, they'll put you off. Maybe you might see a person, you know, once every six months. Mm-hmm. What what do you think is the biggest like for somebody that's in the field? What would, is your biggest concern like moving forward or what do you think needs to change as far as, you know, the, the mental health? It's almost like they made this Obamacare to have health insurance for everybody but it's like more people are mentally suffering than it's like more mm-hmm. people are sick so what you you're in the field what are some of your concerns that you have moving forward in the future and what would you like to see change how things are done now the insurance 
I think is definitely, at least from anecdotally, from seeing clients or when they're contacting me, it is a huge factor. Um, money, finances is a huge factor. Especially if you're in private practice, that cost is higher than if you would pay or, do, or not pay if you had Medi-Cal. Um, there is, I believe, I kind of really quickly heard that there was like a lawsuit going on um, with an insurance, but I don't know the details. And I don't know if that case will then potentially bring up or the barriers or um, I don't want to say like they're necessarily the the one that's like stopping it, but um, from someone getting help, but maybe becoming more accessible in some way. But at least what I see, people want to get help. And then where do they go and get help? Just calling the insurance and trying to figure out where to get help or um, making those phone calls I hear is just very complex. And so if you are someone that has depression mm -hmm. or really anxious or some other disorder that is more severe, that's nearly impossible to do. Mm -hmm. So I do feel like there needs to be there needs to be something else. I think we've gone a long way with talking about mis uh, mental health and the importance of it, but it seems like the availability or accessibility is definitely um, a huge barrier for people. I know there's been um, like new talk and potentially uh, this new way of tech using technology. Mm -hmm. So for, for people that cannot afford it or they don't have transportation to get to a agency or they don't have internet connectivity, they can um, download an app and then through the app they can do these different resources and, and have a whole toolbox of what they can use. So that's one potential factor I think that could help. Um, and then I had another thought, but I can't think about it. That happens to me all the other time. <laughs> it's such a big, yeah. huge issue. I want to I want to touch on something before I forget because my mind goes okay. everywhere, and I didn't write down no notes. I, I wrote down notes, and I don't know what I did with them. <laughs> typical of me, because um, there's two topics I want to talk about for sure. The words that we hear: depression and gaslighting. Mm -hmm. We'll get to depression first because there's some type of stigma. I think I mentioned to you just before. Some of the some of the older people will say that. Um, it's not as it, it was just as bad back in their day than it is right now. Mm -hmm. Personally, I feel like that's minimizing the things that the people are going through right now. But you seeing people with the depression, some people think that it's just it's made up. Or you know, if you you know, or well, um, I lost a job. I'm depressed. You know, they they kind of minimize it. Mm -hmm. So how do you how do you is depression? curable like you know can you take tylenol or something i know mm -hmm. it sounds silly and mm -hmm. then it's just uh, after six months it's it's fine or is this something that in your experience is really a lifelong battle that people have to have to deal with well it's dependent so some people may be depressed and there we do find that there's a genetic component to it um so some may be more susceptible to it and then there's some individuals who will always be depressed. Maybe they were depressed as a child or an adolescent and then they continue on. So living with depression will always be there. And in that case, um, depending on how severe it is, they may need medication, but there are some people that know they have depression. They've always battled with depression. Maybe it runs in their family and they just have to push harder. They know how to manage their symptoms in order to get through life. Um, and then there's some that 
maybe it's more situational. Something happened or lots of things have happened. Um, bereavement is, is one big one that if looks like depression, it feels like depression, right? And it just kind of takes time for that person to heal um, and grieve over that loved one. Um, and so if it's situational, I think um, many of the clients that I saw was situational and it's more of trying to figure out what it is, trying to do a lot of things like case management to help them, trying to figure out how to, um, the different tools that they can use. But oftentimes it's the thought, it always falls in. I'm from a cognitive behavioral uh, therapy Mm -hmm. perspective, so I'm always gonna say it's the thought that mainly Mm -hmm. is that one thing that starts the depression. Um, So it's all dependent and it's, you know, the, what you were saying of how some people may say, oh, kind of minimizing whatever um, someone is feeling today, um, it's all dependent on that individual. Some people are more resilient than, than others, and some people may experience a similar situation differently based mm-hmm. on that, our perspective or maybe our experiences that maybe magnify it a little bit more. So I, I think it's, it's good to hear, especially somebody that's been around it all the time because I think even myself personally I think before I've dealt with somebody else and I kind of minimized it because I always looked at it like I have a mom she's in her 70s now she grew up in a time where uh there was colored you know colored restaurants and you couldn't Mm -hmm. and 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 I'm like you you dealt with all this stuff you had to have some type of and you were just and you were just tough and then you get into a relationship with somebody and you expect them, well, why is certain things bothering you? You kind of scoff at it. Mm-hmm. But now that you start to talk to people and you see how, how it affects people, how this is serious, it's kind of made me look at, you know, look at things differently. And so I want to go to another note before I get, I'm going to come back to the gaslighting, but I was mm-hmm. noticing something with all the, the, the things that you deal with. And it mentioned PTSD, but it said in like toddlers. Is that, did I read that wrong? It, it, it's, um, well, there's, you know, anyone can, at, any, at any age can experience trauma, um, but there's not necessarily just like a diagnosis for trauma. There's PTSD and there's ASD and there's um, maybe something else that kind of maybe doesn't fit, but it's kind of like in the anxiety field. So to actually categorize, well, this is a misconception, actually. Okay. A lot of people think that because they experience trauma, then they say, oh, I have PTSD about it. Okay. Well, to actually fit that criteria, it's pretty extensive. So not everyone fits the PTSD criteria, but that's not to say to dismiss the anxiety or the trauma that they're, all these symptoms that they're feeling, but I just won't necessarily diagnose them as PTSD, but I'll say somewhere along the line that we're addressing trauma. So yes, even an infant can experience trauma. Do they necessarily know it? They may not. If they, if, if some, if there's a child or an infant that experiences trauma, um, even as they age, they may not be able to verbalize it, Mm -hmm. but you see it in their behavior. Maybe they react differently. Typically children act out more, or maybe they avoid something. And in that case, we call it pre-verbal trauma. Okay, sticking to the to the um, the child, and I forget what what it, what it is. So you got to forgive me because I just mm-hmm. we just what's the um oh my goodness. So as a child, there are stages. What's it called again? And then and then that stage might make you prone to be like this when you get older. What 
is uh, well, there's different theories. Um, Freud had um, psychosexual okay. stages, yeah, and so he had he divided the development of a child in different ages, okay, in different stages as well. And then Piaget had his own stages as well with different ages. And then Eric Erikson also developed stages um, throughout life, so from infancy until death. So it just depends which perspective. No, it's at. not. Okay, see, I, I should okay. know this. It's the, okay, remember I, you said, I said, maybe that's why my relationship has been like that. And then you were like, well, uh, because. Attachment theory. Attachment theory. There okay. we go. So explain yeah. the attachment theory and how that as, you know, that starts as a child in, in, the, in the, different, the different parts and how that could possibly affect as you get older, that's what I that's what I want to know the attachment theory. So the at attachment theory in class, um, it it stems from an experiment by Mary Ainsworth, who did a study on children and their mothers and their relationships. So it, it's called the stranger or the strange situation experiment. And so she had the parent, the mother, and the child come into the into it a room, and there was different toys and allowed the child to explore, and then there was different. Um, I guess, series of the, of the study, but essentially the mother had to leave, maybe a stranger came in, that's why it was a strange situation, and mother was there, and then she left, and again, it, it was all an observation of how that child reacts, so did they have a secure attachment, That they, and that should have been where the mother cry, the, the child cries when the mother leaves, and then soothes quick, quickly once the mother returns, then there's the avoidant attachment, um, the insecure attachment and then the neglectful attachment. So in academia, those are kind of like the, the, the different types of attachments. Um, I don't want to get into it because then it's like a whole lecture. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but then uh, Freud or psychoanalysis or psychoanalytic theory, which then extended from Freud, um, believe that it, they're, they're, they discuss it more on how your attachment with your parent reflects who you are today. So whichever pattern you had as a child, if it was secure or if it was avoidant or if it was insecure where it was sometimes your mom was there and sometimes she wasn't, then you would then have this pattern as an adult. And they believe that the mother is the most important object in, in our lives, especially mm -hmm. at a very young age. I hear from three to five. Mm -hmm. And so once that is developed, that tends to be the pattern for the rest of our relationships, not just romantically, but colleagues, friendships, supervisors, things like that. Okay. So let's go back to you, you, you see, you see clients, you, um, when you first started, do you remember your first your first person that you seen? I mean, obviously I, you don't say the person's name. I do but. remember my first client I don't remember the first session mm -hmm. but I remember him and I remember his name and yeah. and how like you've been doing it when you graduated with 2009 right so I I started I started actually um, as a paraprofessional so a lot of people don't know that route so I didn't need any type of training or not training um, I didn't need a certificate but I needed a training. And basically I can see clients um, under someone who is supervised. And so I did that for about a year or so, maybe less. Um, no, about a year for sure. I forget. 
it's blurred. <laughs> so let me, sorry mm -hmm. to cut you off. Mm -hmm. How do you, I always wonder this because I think about, um, there's, there's uh, police officers that work in like the sexual crimes unit, mm -hmm. right? Some of them stop doing that because of everything that they have to deal with every day. Mm -hmm. how, how are you able to, I guess, compartmentalize all the things that you have people come tell you, the things that mm -hmm. you, you've dealt with, uh, you've seen children that have been abused, you've probably seen adults that have been abused. I mean, how are you, does that not, how are you don't allow that to affect what co goes on in your in your in regular life right. and that you don't become doesn't you yeah. know well the idea there's i remember when i took on when we're going into therapy i've heard of um psychotherapists actually having really high rates of depression because of all that we consume and i don't know if maybe that has an influence on me and why i teach at the same time so it's not just full-on therapy mm -hmm. i can have this other type of um, I don't know how to say it. I guess psychology expression or another type mm -hmm. of job, right? Other than just full-on therapy. Um, but I, it, it is very real. And because of that, not a lot of people go into therapy thinking that they can do, and then they realize, oh, wait, I can't do it because I'm thinking about this person all the time and it's impacting me. Um, in my previous job, I met clients that were at high risk, and it was... Um, one of the most intensive outpatient services here in Southern California. And I was on call 24 seven. I did have to hospitalize clients at times. Um, I got a phone call on Thanksgiving. Like I would get in on Saturdays. I would get in the, in the evenings. And that is a lot in addition to all the trauma that they would experience. But I think what helps me, well, everyone has their own kind of way of dealing with stress. Mm -hmm. And so for me was, yeah, reaching out to my colleagues or my supervisor to help me process that. Sometimes I did go, because I would go to the homes, and once I went to the next client, I would cry, because I felt awful for yeah. them. Yeah. Um, for me, spirituality is important, so praying is important, yes. that would help me. Yes. Um, and then music as well, that okay. would help me kind of transition to the next one. But I'm not gonna lie, sometimes I see a movie and it reminds me of clients or a client, and then I'm just like, yeah, I've seen it was one that and I'm not even I'm not in your field, but it was like the color of blue or something. And the, and the kid, he was in love with the girl. And at the end of the movie, he committed suicide. That messed me mm -hmm. up for like a month. Yeah, that 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 ending. But I, 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 you know, I have to give you your props because, you know, a lot of times, especially in the world, society gives praise to people that not necessarily don't. You know, we always hear about the teachers you know, teachers deserve more pay to do, but mm -hmm. you therapists and teach. Well, you're both, so that's kind of uh, that's pretty good. You know, um, you guys take on a lot mm -hmm. and, that a lot of people couldn't handle, and and I always think about it with. Um, and it's funny that I forget all the stuff that I just learned, but it's almost like most of the time, if you plant something in the garden, you get to see the growth of it. Mm -hmm. If it's your garden, sometimes doing what you do, you don't might not necessarily get to see. The, the, the pot at the end of the rainbow yes. because it's a it's a constant yeah. thing. So how have you just wrapped that with yourself? Like, do you take certain wins or do you take certain, well, this is what I'm gonna derive for this. I'm doing the best I can with this person, but it might be a lifelong battle that you might never, nobody's gonna come to you and be like, right. you know, look, I beat the cancer or the cancer is gone. Right. You know, this other stuff stays forever. So 
just how are you just able to just put that and keep that in perspective? You know, I can't say um, that I've helped every single client because I haven't, that that's the reality of it. Um, but the ones that I have helped, even if it was minimal or even if it was just, there are some clients that were so resistant to therapy and if they stayed in therapy, then that alone, even though it's small, it's like a huge, huge triumph because at one point they didn't trust anyone and now I hope that I made an experience with them where they can actually trust someone. And that in itself is huge to be able to trust people. Um, so no matter how small it is along the way with a client, it is, it is beautiful. It's very rewarding. Um, at the end of our sessions, I always um, allow what I tend to do is I write a letter to them mm-hmm. and they write a letter to me. Oh, okay. And I keep all those letters. Oh, that's And that's... sometimes children write, draw pictures or something like that, and I keep everything in a book just for me. And then there's some that do end up finding me, and then they're like, it's been years, it's been like eight years or 10 years, and this is what I'm doing. So therapy works, people. I'm trying to tell you, you know, some people swear against it. I, I used to be like that, but I actually, actually went to, what's you say, cognitive therapy. Mm-hmm. So it, so it, it showed me how my thinking was messing up my decisions. Right. And you know, usually the thing about what if your people that love you tell you something, you you tend to get mad because mm-hmm. you feel like they're attacking you. Well, when I read it in the book. I mean, I couldn't tear the book up and throw the book in the trash. The right. book was telling me, oh, I'm like, man, I'm really like this. You know, that, you know that's crazy. So okay. let's go back to this, the, 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 the term of the decade, this, this get right, or, the, or the last few years, gaslighting. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, and I just really want you to explain on your perspective, like, what it means. And then we'll go talk about some of your teaching, which you like. Because here's the thing. I say this all the time. I was in a relationship. I'm not gaslighting you if I'm responding to something that you're saying. How am I gaslighting you if I'm just responding back to you? Oh, you're gaslighting me. How is that possible? So I can't have a conversation with you and I'm gaslighting. So tell me why it's taken out of context and what it what what it means. Yeah. So historically, the term gaslighting came from a movie. Um, I think it's like the 1950s and it was called gaslighting or something like that. So that's where it comes from. But essentially, it's um, you see the truth and someone says, no, it's not, you know, who are you going to believe your eyes or me? Um, so it's just blatantly kind of lying and just denying the truth. Now, gaslighting typically happens, um, in, in personality disorders. So people who are diagnosed with narcissism or have narcissistic traits will tend to do that. And, and the whole point of it is that, and I think this is the misconception of it. Like sometimes we have misunderstandings or we perceive something differently, but when, from what it, its true form or where it comes from, these people who are diagnosed with narcissism are using it to purposely use the person. So every person is more so like a tool for them for their own benefit. And so they're using it for their benefit somehow. So there's a, an intent there. Okay, um, before mm-hmm. I forget, I'm glad you said that. Spoke about before. We know the taboo word, suicide. Mm-hmm. Some people will say, in a, you've been in a relationship, I don't know if you've experienced this, maybe, I, I know women and men have experienced this, they deal with somebody. If you leave me, I'm gonna kill myself. Mm-hmm. If you leave me, I'm gonna kill myself. P- explain what that does to a person and 
if somebody says that, what the person that has been told that, whether it be the, 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 the wife mm -hmm. or the husband or the boyfriend or the girlfriend, what should they do if somebody continues to say that or use that as a threat? So you're right that suicide, the word suicide, lots of people don't want to use it. Even some therapists, they may say, have you ever thought of harming yourself instead of just saying, have you thought of killing yourself or committing suicide? It's uncomfortable for our community or our culture to say, but we need to say it. And research shows that when you actually ask someone if they're thinking about suicide, it actually decreases their chances of suicide. So it's very important to actually say those words. Um, now, worse, the, these thoughts of suicide, some people can have passive thoughts. So it's not so much I have a plan or intent, but it's I wish I woke up and I wasn't alive or I wish I like, could be walking and a car hits me. Like I wish something, and so, so those are passive. And then there's some people may move along that have maybe a plan and then maybe get the means to do it and then maybe have a plan and means but not the intent, right? So it just kind of ranges. Um, and so when someone says suicide, I want to like stress that's obviously it's, you want to take it seriously because you don't know where they are. And the way I see it is, can I go to sleep, right, if someone said this to me? And if I can't, if there's a self-doubt, then I'm going to do something about it. Okay. Now, sometimes people may use that term to manipulate someone else. Um, they're not necessarily suicidal. Maybe they are depressed. That's not to say that they're, they know exactly what's going on. They're fine and they're a content person. They probably do have some issues, but this is their way of somehow getting that person to do what they want, to not leave them. Um, for example, people who are diagnosed with borderline will actually have high suicide rates, and they'll say, I'm going to kill myself if you leave me, because um, they typically have this deep, deep, deep fear of abandonment or rejection, um, so they, they can do it. Sometimes they may not, and they're more impulsive as well. Um, typically, impulsivity is, a, is also a predictor for suicide, um, trying to commit it, at least. Being successful depends on the means of that person. So that being said, suicide, again, should be taken seriously. And so when someone says that, my recommendation is always then to call um, the local police department and ask for a welfare check. Okay. That way the police go and they check. If that person doesn't answer, they'll come back the next day or hours later, depending on when the call was made. But the whole, I think the the... The, what's trying to be expressed is that I'm going to take this seriously mm -hmm. and so if if you are if you, you just said this to me and I want you to be alive I don't want this I don't want anything to happen so I'm going to call the police now that could then potentially open the door for that person because if they are and they do say that to the police officers then they'll link them and they'll have someone come out and 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 support that um if they need to get hospitalized, but if not, they may just give information or some kind of case management. Um, and if they were just bluffing, well, then they know not to. That, mm -hmm. yeah. Now, when you are, are you guys required by law when you're seeing somebody, if somebody tells you that, are you in the middle of the session, the person said, well, I feel like killing myself. Do you make a call or wait till they leave or I know you, you mentioned earlier you've had to hospitalize people. Mm -hmm. How does what what's the you know the 
rules that you as a mm-hmm. therapist, a licensed therapist, have to have to abide by? So um, it's if someone says they want to harm themselves or someone else, you're supposed to make a call. Okay. Um, now, because of the clients that I would see, if they're severely depressed, and I know they've had attempts, and I know they are, they do have these thoughts of suicidality. Every time they tell me they they want to kill themselves, it's kind of like a very tricky and fine line. If I were to call and hospitalize them every time they said that, then I'm not going to get much progress mm-hmm. done. So it really does depend on the plan, the means, the intent, um, and creating a safety plan where they can access help, support, um, creating a safe environment, um, having people on board to support them. And if needed, then that would be, if I'm on call 24-7, that would be me. Okay. Now, but not every therapist does that. And then I did, I did hospitalize clients, but I was an LPS designee, so I had to do a specific training and get a certification in order to diagnose, to hospitalize clients. Um, it was only under that agency, so I can't do that for my private practice anymore. If a client tells me that and I'm concerned, then I have to call 911. So depending on the agency, they all have this different, um, and on how what, the, what their clients' needs mm-hmm. are is going to be dependent. For example, schools, they, tend, they have a system as well, and they tend to just call it in. They're, they don't want to take any risks. So obviously you guys have a great deal of responsibility. I think I mentioned this to you before. I see a lot of monetization behind therapy, especially if you're on social media. Mm-hmm. It's like you'll see these people posting, and, and it's like, well, buy my book. And, and again, I'm, hey, you know, people have to make a living. But is there some type of danger maybe in that? I mean, are, 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 because if I'm online and I, and I happen to come across somebody on Instagram, mm-hmm. how do I know that they're really, that they're, they have the credentials? Because it's not, you know, you went through strenuous mm-hmm. training for this. Is there a danger now? Or do you see, is there something that bothers you about the therapy field? And then we'll get to your teaching, because mm-hmm. I know it's one of your passions that, that you would see. And, and then again, another thing, you mentioned how, and it's, it makes sense, that sometimes you're, um, every therapist is not the right for one person. Mm-hmm. So how do you determine that you're not right for that person, mm-hmm. or does that person determine you're not right for them? Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to try to answer all the questions. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, so, you know. <laughs> um, I think the, well, going to your question of, like, people um, capitalizing, right, on it, that's always been around, though. Okay. It's always been around psychology. Um, okay. From listen to this hypnosis tape, and then you'll be able to increase your IQ points. That's always been around. Um, and then sometimes um, what I'll see sometimes in books, like it's maybe in therapy, um, they'll, they're, they're, they're concepts or terms or, tech or you know strategies that we all know, but then they'll kind of reframe it or reuse it as their own. And I mean that, I mean, kind of like hey that's plagiarism that's my teacher like that's give someone the credit that they deserve Mm -hmm. right that's not yours that's someone else's um of course you can adapt it or do whatever but always give credit to where that comes from so if you are thinking about a book then i think it is important to do your research on them and where did they go to school did they sometimes they don't even have the degrees did they actually have the degree um you can also like i could have gone to graduate school right 
and went to graduate school to get to be a therapist or social work, but I've never had practiced. So to be licensed, there's another process there that I have to do with the Board of Behavioral Science in order to continue to practice. Okay. Yeah. And then the part about how do you know um, the decision of if a therapist, if you're right for the, for that person, do you, mm. has there been times where you had to tell the person, I'm not going to see you no more because I'm not, is there something that you look for that tells you what I'm doing is reaching this person? Yeah. So initially when you first meet the client, I think that is a good place for both of you to see if you can work together. Um, it's hard because maybe the first session feels good, but maybe by the fifth, you're not getting what you want. And what do you mean by you're not getting what you want? Maybe um, sometimes I'll hear people say they don't feel heard. Um, they want more advice or more direction. Um, so it's just dependent on that person. Um, more support in some way or more strategies. Or maybe they don't want, like CBT will do more assignments. So they'll give you an assignment after a session. Maybe mm -hmm. they don't want that. They just want a place to talk. Okay. Um, so it's it's dependent on that individual. Um, and if, if a therapist may be able to make that accommodation, but if they feel like, oh, actually I can't, then that sounds more like you want this particular type of, of therapy. So it, I don't think I would be, I would be a good fit. Okay. But there have been also times where um, there, there has to be a point where you're seeing someone and then there's no progress. And so it would be unethical for me to continue to keep seeing this person if there is no progress. So then I have to be honest, like every six months you're at least supposed to review your treatment goals and then say, hey, I don't think I'm, I'm helping. You know, this, we're, I've, I've tried this, I've tried that. You know, do you want to consider maybe another therapist or another agency? Okay, a few more questions on therapy then I promise we'll get to the mm -hmm. teaching. So what is the absolute no for a therapist outside of obviously interacting with a relationship with the client mm -hmm. that they that they tell you you know like this is just cannot be done like if you if you were to do that you'd be at a risk of like losing your license or something what's the absolute that a therapist cannot do yeah um this is gonna sound like to me it sounds bizarre and it's like a no-brainer but um, one of the things that keeps, that's always comes up and keeps coming up is that a therapist should not have sex with their client. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's like anything. The judge, the attorney, all this. <laughs> I mean, you would, you would, yeah, you would think. I hope people, well, I'm sure that's a whole nother. <laughs> that's a whole nother podcast. But, okay, because here's the thing. So my dad used to always tell me when I asked him something. Like if I was at, he said, look, son. I'm not going to tell you what to do. Mm -hmm. I'm going to give you the the principles or something. You make the decision. Because mm -hmm. if I tell you what to do and you go do it and if something goes wrong, you're going to blame me. Mm -hmm. Do you think, and I, I've explained this to you before, some, somebody, and I think it was a way for her to kind of like goad me. Well, well, my therapist said that I should leave you. Well, wait, well, your therapist don't know both sides of the story. Right. So how are they making, how are they telling you to do something when they just hearing your side? Have yeah. you, have you had, and I'm sure you had clients that wanted you to be like, maybe it was a, a wife or something. Mm -hmm. well, well, do you think I should leave him? Or obviously, if it's abuse, of course, you're going to you, right. tell the person that, yeah, you should leave. 
But how do you balance that? Because mm-hmm. you probably know you've seen somebody like, yeah, this woman should kick this fool to the curb. Well, as a therapist, you're not supposed to tell your clients what to do. You can help them explore or you know weigh the advantages or disadvantages. You reflect back what they're saying. Um, you help them find, make that decision. And the whole reason behind it is that you, I'm, I'm not going to be with that client the rest of their lives. And to be successful... For them to be successful and for me to be successful is that I can help them make better choices without me in their life. So I don't want them to depend on me. And then if something goes wrong, then who's to blame? Now, I have had experiences where maybe I'm reflecting back or I say something like, oh, it sounds like you're having a difficult time or mm-hmm. it sounds like you're thinking about leaving them. It sounds mm-hmm. like, you know, you're you're this is probably not the best relationship. And then they'll go around and say, well, you said, no, no, I didn't. (laughs) I'm just reflecting back. Yeah. You know, so I think sometimes that can get, I guess. Yeah. Misconstrued. So share with the, with everybody and then we'll move on. Like there was going to be two sides. What has been the worst experience that you've had and in, in whatever's with, with, with adults, with child, with the, I know you mentioned Mm -hmm. before you were, there was threats made and what has been the absolute best experience you've had since you've been doing this that's tough um i don't know if i would say there's one particular client or case that was the worst challenging there's been like what what they have in common mm-hmm. and I, and i think this is part of because of the agency that i was in or the program that i was in they didn't want therapy and that was the hardest part trying to provide services when someone doesn't want to and so it it took a long time to build a relationship to then get them to see some benefit from it so that was the hardest part when they don't want to see you yeah um i have had a client like threaten to kill me and that was stressful but but again the piece is he doesn't want like he was mad or he didn't want services at the time right so it's trying to change that around where they actually do want he made the threats when you guys are he didn't make the threats like when you went home or nothing like that but just during the course of the session yeah okay yeah yeah that's that's you you guys have a lot on your plate i've thought about that a lot well it depends on the clients that you see i saw high-risk clients um there are some people that will never see those high-risk clients that are just more kind of day-to-day issues then they won't necessarily see that so let's get to your other passion teaching Mm mm-hmm um, where did you pick that up and do you think that's a well obviously it's a good balance because it keeps you um, well it's two totally different things but you're both interacting so what, what why is that your, your, your other passion and, and how does that help keep the balance from you know if you had to pick one or the other which one would you do actually you know um, okay so I started teaching because of the recession I graduated during the recession. I couldn't find a job. And one of my mentors kept recommending that I apply. I was like, no, 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 because I'm really a true introvert. I'm really shy. Um, I can't tell. (laughs) I I decided to do it, (laughs) and I really enjoyed it. And so that's why I kept doing it. Um, And then my my – I don't don't think I can – that's my problem. I can't decide because if I could decide, then I would have stopped teaching yeah. or I would have stopped therapy. Yeah. And I can't. And that's my problem. Oh, so okay. I just do both and work a lot. That's good. <laughs> so, so 
basically, what would you, so what would be your advice for, again, anybody that's kind of lost their way, or what would you, as a teacher and as a therapist, because again, you've, d- you've done marriage therapy, which I'm sure is, is crazy, I can only imagine, and, and you know, obviously you, you, you teach students, when, what, what's your, like your, your end game for everybody? What's your, like again, the, the, that keeps you hmm. getting up to do this? What, what? Well, and let me clarify, the marriage and family therapist means that I could see individuals, families, and marriage, even okay. though it says marriage, okay. but it can be individual. So it's, okay. that's why my experience is so broad um, because I didn't, the, the, the category was high risk. So people had tons of different experiences, their situations. Um, what keeps me going, I think it's under, I was thinking about this question because you asked me before of what my passion, I was thinking is psychology, but actually it really is people, our community. And I, and through teaching, I can do that with trying to help, um, support, maybe mentor students, right, to, to get to wherever that goal is, whether it's in psychology or not. And then um, therapy is, again, supporting that piece of when someone has mentally they're not, or I guess they're mental, they need to take care of their mental health in some way. Mm-hmm. So so that's kind of like my passion. So what keeps me going is the people. Yeah. yeah. Now, did you have, because I've I never asked you this, but have you, are you, com- were you a close-knit family? Like, was there, was there, Anything like maybe when you were coming up that she was like, mm-hmm. oh, I've seen that because different cultures are, you know, obviously they're different. Some cultures, there's no communication. Some cultures, there's a lot of argument. When I came up, my mom was aggressive. Mm-hmm. So she was in my dad's face yelling and screaming. My dad would kind of just look at her like, huh? Mm-hmm. you know, and, and and but that's how you seen it. So was there anything that that was younger that made you cater a little bit towards this or have it? Or does everything just be you learn like you've seen all healthy relationships when you were coming up? No, I think the experience for all of us is that we had we experienced or observed uh, ha- like healthy ones and unhealthy ones. So I think it's been a mix um, growing up. My parents um, divorced when I was about seven years old, and then my mom remarried, um, and then my dad just he hasn't gotten into a relationship. So um, I got to see, you know, and even through my extended family, I got to see healthy ones and unhealthy ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for the most part, especially now, there's a lot of blended families. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't necessarily anything in my childhood that geared me towards therapy or teaching. I think it really just started in my first psychology course. And then I just found everything 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 interesting yeah even the biopsych part i was like oh my gosh this is so awesome yeah okay well look i appreciate you coming on is there you wouldn't give your credentials is there any is are you seeing people do you take uh you got a social media or people you know maybe she don't want to be bothered by people she's got (laughs) enough on her plate um but i really appreciate you coming on thank you it's very very we got to start giving I need a Cole here to hit my round of applause button that he's supposed to get. <laughs> but we got to really start giving people their flowers because, again, you guys have a, even the teachers, because I know in class, half of us, especially as adults, I'll be doing five or six things. My, my teacher looked at me and was like, what do you got going on? I said, man, this is how I concentrate. I got to, I got stuff. I'm, I'm trying. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm almost 50 doing the best I can. But really for you to mm-hmm. take these things on 
And and again, like I say, when 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 people do stuff and you don't necessarily you know get to see the the, the fruits that it bears, mm-hmm. that is we need more people like that. Yeah. So so thank you. You're wonderful. Thank uh, you. We need more people like you. And thank you so very much for coming on. This has been uh, I don't know what number we're on. This is a uh, um, what's my show called? Oh, never about the cake. I went through a name change. I can't remember. <laughs> this is uh, Virginia Bez. Uh, again. We thank her for coming on, and we'll see you guys next week. Thank you. Thank you.